Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. we uh, went through um, only part of 1 Timothy 3 on the deacons, the deaconesses, and the elders. Any questions on that? Does that sort of make sense what we talked about? Big picture is what about these guys? What's the big picture? Character. All right. Character overrides everything. Um, Character overrides ability. It overrides the ability to speak well. It overrides, you know, any kind of talent these men have. Character is everything. All right. So that's that's the big picture item here. When it comes to the elders, character is everything. Um, in verse 14, these things I write you, although I hope to come to you shortly. So what is Paul telling Timothy there? This is going back to the personal part of the letter. I hope to come there shortly. So he's planning on visiting him. He's planning on showing up and and helping Timothy. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to behave, how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So why is this book written? This is the key verse. How do, you, how do you behave yourself in the house of God? Okay. And it says this is the house of God. It's God's house, not your house. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the things we're missing nowadays in, in, many, in modern evangelical circles is a respect for the house of God, the church, just a respect for it. And, and what I mean by that is is there, there seems to be a, a sort of a lack in people's minds of any loyalty to the image of the church. I've known people that have left open door and they immediately trash it. Now what's wrong with that? You're trashing God's house. It's not your house, it's God's house, all right? Now, if you have some personality conflict or you leave for some reason, it's okay to do that, but don't go and spread the dirty laundry out all over the Lorraine County. Don't go to church and talk about how bad and horrible your church is. That's not doing God any favors. This is God's house, and we're to respect it. And people say, well, I don't respect who's there. Well, okay, fine, but don't trash God's church. This is his house. And there needs to be a loyalty to the image of the church because we're God's extension in this world. And when we act in an ungodly manner and we act like the world, we're showing there's really no difference. Be loyal to God's house. Be loyal to the church. And if you find out for some reason that you can't be loyal here anymore, go somewhere else. But don't drag God's name through the mud by trashing His church. Yeah, but when's it okay to warn people about a church that's, you know, I think you can warn people about an apostate church 
That's different, I think. I think there's a difference when the church is apostate or the church is falling into to, you know, sin or, or heresy. That's different. You confront that. But 95% of the reasons people leave church have nothing to do with doctrine and everything to do with personality. All right? Or they didn't get to sing the solo when they wanted or some other silly thing. Um, in that case, don't trash the church. Don't trash it. Just go somewhere else, you know, because it's God's church. It's his, we're his body, aren't we? Isn't this God's extension, his body? Are you gonna, do you want to beat on the body of Christ? Do you want to make the body of Christ look bad? See, one of the things we need to get is to realize that we have an image to protect beyond ourselves. It's not just about me. It's about God's church. It's about His image. And when I, when I behave badly, I reflect on His body. It's the house of God, which is the church, or the gathered together people of what? The living God. Now, what's the difference between our God and all the other gods? Ours is alive, which implies that He's there. This is the church of the living God. And let's think about this. Um, describe the temple in the first century when Christ was alive. What was it like? Who ran it? Uh, on a scale of godliness of 0 to 10, where were they? Yeah, they're about negative 1, right? Um, they were not very godly. Now, were there some godly priests? Name one. Huh? Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. All right. So there were some godly ones, but the, it was ran by a, a, a den of thieves, right? That's what Christ called them, a den of thieves. What did he do every year? What did Christ do every year? He went to the temple. He went to the temple every year. And although he had no kind words to say for the leaders of the temple, never did he trash the institution. Yeah. But he didn't trash God's institution. This is God's building. This is God's group of gathered people. These are sheep. We're not to trash them. We're not to speak evil of them. And we're to behave ourselves in an appropriate manner in the church. And if you want to know how you should behave in the church, Paul's telling you how to behave in the church. It's all about character. Because this church has a couple of qualities to it. And that quality is, it's the pillar and ground of what? What's the most important component in a church? The most important facet of a church? The linchpin on which everything else revolves. Particularly, truthful doctrine, right? Where is it that the truth is to be deposited and preached and proclaimed and upheld and defended? It's the church. One of the purposes of a church is to defend and uphold the truth. 
And again, there's only one truth. There's a whole lot of error. And there's one truth. And when somebody comes along and says, well, you know, let's not worry about this doctrinal stuff. We just need to be, have a big group hug and love one another. Take them back to this verse. This, the church is not a, a place where you go and hug each other, and, although we are to love each other in an appropriate manner. That's not what it's about. It's, a, it's about truth. And churches today have abandoned the truth for everything else. Look at the mainline religions or mainline denominations, Episcopals. There was a day when, you know, being an Episcopal was probably not a bad thing. Now you could be a homosexual and everything else, right? And be in the Episcopal church. It doesn't matter, right? Paul, of course, is a backwards, bigoted person. And we don't need to worry about what he said in Romans. We're smarter than that. We're more sophisticated than these first century people. What's happened to the truth? It's gone. And um, you got to hang on to the truth. Now, now let's understand when we talk about hanging on to the truth, there are some things that you need to hang on a little bit tighter than others, right? There's a core. There's a core that you cannot let go of. <coughs> All right. Now, outside that core, there might be little things about, you know, how do you do baptism? How do you um, do communion? Um, what do you think about Nebuchadnezzar? Is he in heaven or not? You know, those kind of things. Those, you know, those are not things to, to argue over and split churches over and that. But there's a core of truth that you can't let go of. Because if you let go of it, You've lost. All right? And remember, you know, I drew the diagram for all of you, the, the little triangle where you've got the essentials, and then you've got your convictions, and then you've got your preferences. And the little piece at the top of the triangle is your essentials. That, that's the stuff that keeps you out of heaven. That's the, that's the stuff that you need to be most concerned about. There's a lot of preferential stuff. What hymn book do you use? Uh, what version of the Bible do you use? Do you like the NIV? Do you like the KJV? Do you like the NKJV? You know, you might have preferences. You might have even strong feelings on those, but that's not to the level of truth that Paul is talking about here. The church is to be the depository of truth, and when the church loses that, it's lost everything. In fact, uh, it's interesting. If you look at... Um, Go home, and we're not going to do this, but go home and look at the seven churches in Asia Minor, Revelation 2 and 3. You go from Ephesus all the way to Laodicea. Now, if you look at the character of each one of those churches, you see an increasing loss of truth and an increasing embracing of openness. You know, you start out with Ephesus. What was their big problem? They lost their first love. And then from there, you've got a church that, you know, you, you had some evil in it. And then the next church tolerated evil. The next church, it was openly, blatantly evil. But then Laodicea, it had taken over. And Christ said very plainly, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven is a picture of influence. You put a little bit of sin in a church, you leave it unchecked, and it will destroy it. You put a little bit of error in the church, it'll destroy it. You gotta, you gotta deal with that error. And what is some of those things 
that are the pillar and ground of the truth. Well, I think he says it right here. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. In other words, this is a no-brainer. You don't even need to think about this one. There's no controversy on these. What is it? God was manifested in the flesh. What's that talking about? The incarnation, right? So was Christ God or man? Both, right? But he was God. He was not some glorified man. He was God. He was incarnate God. So when somebody comes along and says, well, you know, this deity of Christ business is nothing to worry about. Time out. Yeah, it is, because that keeps you out of heaven. You deny the deity of Christ, you don't go to heaven. Because there's nothing different about him than any other person, right? God was manifested in the flesh. How was God manifested in the flesh? In the person of Jesus Christ. Go back and read John chapter 1. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was God. Don't let the Jehovah Witnesses tell you he was a God. Don't let the Mormons tell you he is the firstborn offspring of Elohim and one of his many celestial wives. He's God. And he was manifested in the flesh. He was not some glorified spirit being. There's people that think, well, he was just this ghost kind thing that was walking around Palestine. He really wasn't real. And what did John say in John chapter 1, 1 John 1? We seen him, we looked up him, we touched him. I didn't touch a ghost, I touched something physical. He ate. He was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. What do you think that's talking about? Justified in the spirit. There's a lot of ways to interpret. I think what it, what does justified mean? Declared righteous or righteous. What was it? What was it unique about Christ's life? He was righteous. Period. Somebody comes along and says, well, you know, Jesus could have sinned. No, he couldn't have sinned. That's why when you see these Hollywood movies where it shows Jesus, you know, what is that, the last temptation of Christ? That's a waste of film celluloid time. Christ was sinless. If he wasn't sinless, he wasn't our sacrifice. Sort of keeps you out of heaven, doesn't it? He was seen by angels. What do you think it means, seen by angels? He was in heaven and he came to earth, right? Preached among the Gentiles. Preach means to proclaim. What was proclaimed about Christ? What was preached about him? The message. You know, Paul's not trying to delineate every single theological item here. He's not trying to give you an exhaustive list. He's saying the message of Christ was preached among the nations. It was proclaimed. And wrapped up in that proclamation is the good news. Who he is, what he did, why did he come? There's more to believing in Jesus than just believing in Jesus. When someone says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, does that make him a Christian? No, because you say, what Jesus do you believe in, number one, right? What Jesus? I can bring a Mormon in here. I can sit him down. Jesus, Son of God, yes. See, deity, yes. Is he our Savior? Yes. 
Did he die for our sins? Yes. Did he rise again? Yes. Is he a Christian? He's got the wrong Jesus. You're bringing Jehovah Witness in here. Is Jesus God? Yes. What do you mean by that? Well, he's a God. Well, what do you mean by that? And you start digging in deeper, and you find out they mean something totally different. And look, you all, every Christian needs to know what they believe in. They need to know the basics. You need to. There's no excuse not to. Because you've got the same Holy Spirit that everybody else has, don't you? And where does your understanding come from? Your great intellectual abilities? It comes from the Holy Spirit who, who gives you insight and understanding. He's preached on among the Gentiles, believed on in the world. What does it mean to believe on him? Well, it means more than just an intellectual assent, doesn't it? Yeah, see, and, and there's difference. There's a believe and there's a believe, right? You can believe in something, but if you don't put your eggs in the basket, you don't believe in it. There's a, there's a trust factor that comes into play. Blondin was a guy who used to walk across tightropes, and I went to Niagara Falls, and he had strung a rope across Niagara Falls. And anybody who wants to go across a rope on Niagara Falls is an idiot. But he walked across there. Walked, then he took a wheelbarrow filled full of bricks, walked across back and forth. Finally asked some guy, he said, well, do you think I could put a man in here and go across? Oh, sure, yeah, I saw you. Yeah, absolutely. Get in. Forget it. Bye. See ya. All right, so he believed, but he didn't believe, right? You can believe, but not believe. Believe is more than just intellectual assent. Believe is a total commitment. A total commitment. And it says he was received up into glory. What's that a stamp of? Resurrection, which is also a stamp of proof, God's approval of proof. Paul is just, he's hitting, what he's hitting here is the components of what is the core. The core is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The person is who is he? The work is what did he do on the cross and what implication does that have for you? Now, there are other theological issues that we could argue and debate, but this is the core. This is what the church's responsibility is to uphold. And so when the pastor of your church talks about doctrine, talks about standing for the truth, and people say, oh, let's not, you know, let's just all, why can't we all just get along? Truth is the foundation. And let, let, me, let me tell you this. Error always says, don't judge. Truth always says, examine me. Always. That's the way it is. Yeah. Received up into glory, that's not talking about the ascension? Yeah, it is. Oh, I thought you said resurrection. Well, resurrection and ascension. Oh. Yeah. No, I won't confuse you with that. Okay, I won't confuse you. I'll make a test question just for you on that. All right. No, received up into glory. It, Paul's not sitting here giving you a 15-page you know, summary of all the doctrines. 
He's given the, the big point. The idea of being received up into glory is Christ's ascension into heaven after his resurrection, which is an, a stamp of approval on his person and work and what he did, right? It's the proof that what he did was what he was to do. And this was sort of like a little catechism. Many say that this little, these little sentences here are sort of a catechism on the early church, sort of a, an encapsulation of truth, because they didn't have books back then. It was all oral tradition, oral learning. And I think MacArthur does a real good job in the commentaries talking about this. But this is the core. There is a core that the church is to uphold. All right? Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. What's the latter times? Well, what is latter times in the context of the New Testament? After Christ departs. Yeah. From this time till now. The latter days was anything after Christ's ascension to his second coming. Now, as you get longer away from that ascension, it's the latter, latter, latter days, and then there's the latter, 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 latter days, you know. So it's getting more latter as we go along. But as far as the New Testament writers are concerned, they were in the latter days. And what Paul is saying here is that not only then, but as time goes on, it's going to get darker and darker and darker. Should we be surprised that there's, there's theological error out there? No. Because no. what does the Spirit say? Some will depart from the faith. What does it mean to depart from the faith? Leave, abandon, go away. What's the faith? What's he talking about? The faith. It, it's more than, I mean, faith here is not, it's a noun. The faith is the teaching of Christ. Okay, it's not just faith, it's the faith. The faith, the belief, the doctrine of Christ. And it connects back to the previous verse, which talks about what some of that doctrine is. It's the faith. They're going to depart from it. They're going to leave it. Some will depart from the faith. And instead of listening to the faith, what are they going to do? They're going to give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Deceiving spirits. Now, you want to find out where, where is the greatest example and collection? Where can you find the greatest example and collection of deceiving spirits today? TBN. Turn on the TV. And there's the greatest single collection of deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Think about what it says, deceiving spirits. What's implied in that? You think these guys on TV know that they're full of hot air? No. Probably not. They think they're right. You know, Kenneth Hagin is not going to say, Folks, I'm going to hell. I'm going to take all of you with me. I can. He honestly thinks 
He's going to heaven. He believes it. He believes it. And to me, the scariest passage in the Bible is Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, did we not? Yeah, who are you? Not, you know, it's not like the angels got to nudge God and say, Psst, you know, he's, oh, I forgot. No, God knows. That's not what he's saying there. God, of course, knows who they are. But God doesn't know them personally because of their unbelief. Just because somebody uses God talk, Bible talk, they quote a few verses, and they have a ministry doesn't make them part of the kingdom of God. Not at all. They're deceived. They depart from the faith. Why is it that the church is required to uphold the faith? Because there has to be somewhere where that repository of faith is held that's held in a pure state. Because as time goes on, people are going to depart from the truth. They're going to be led off and deceived. They're going to be deceived by people who themselves are deceived. Or maybe these people know they're being deceived and they're deceiving any people anyways. Or they're in it for the money. They're deceptive spirits. And this is what it says, doctrines of demons. What's the, where's the origin of this teaching? Satan. Satan. What's Satan busy doing right now? What's what's the big picture? What's he what's his what's he mainly concerned with doing? Destroying the truth that I know, destroying my faith. Is he worried about your faith? No, he just wants to destroy my he wants to destroy what I know is the gospel truth. He wants me to lose that. So he has a staff meeting every day and he talks about you in particular. And says, okay, who's who's going to go and rattle her? I know, we'll have her take a test in this class. That'll shake her up a bit. You think, you think Satan's worried about you? He wants to go after the church. But what is the big weapon he uses? No. Lies. Deceit. Satan, look, Satan does not, Satan is not going to expend his energy getting you to commit a sin. Why is that? You don't need any help, right? Honestly, Jamie, do you need Satan's help to sin? You do fine on your own, don't you, right? You don't need the devil. Now, maybe once in a while he'll come along or send a demon along to do something, but but as far as sin goes, we're just fine on our own. We don't need Satan's help to sin. That's not where he's interested in doing. He's interested in attacking the truth. He's interested in creating false systems of belief that entrap and ensnare people. Because if he can get something good going like Mormonism, that takes care of about 50 million people right there. If you get another false religion going like Islam, there goes another billion or two down the tubes. It's false religion. In a sense, I mean, is that what he did to the Episcopal Church? With their, that's, that's an apostate view. I would well, say, yeah. You, you, you know, with homosexuality. When you lose grip of the truth, deception comes in, and before long, you've lost it. 
you've lost the truth. It's gone. And Satan is not worried about getting individuals to sin. The devil does not make you do it. Now, are there some individuals that Satan might tempt? Well, you know, we got Judas, we got Christ, maybe a couple others. Peter, Satan desired to have him to sift him like wheat. But quite honestly, folks, Satan's never showed up at my door. I don't think so. He doesn't need to. I sin just fine on my own. But what he is interested in doing is starting and propagating false religion. Because if he can do that, he wins. Where does these doctrines come from? They come from demons. Where does Mormonism come from? Demons. Jehovah's Witnesses, demons. Islam, demons. Buddhism, demons. The New Age, demons. It's demonic. It's a demonic origin. Because what, what comes from God? Truth. So if it's not truth, where does it come from? Not God, right? <laughs> if it's not true, it's not from God. So it has to come from one other source. Satan. I feel the terror was on last night. I just happened to catch it. There was this female minister with her lover bickering about if she won that passing in her house. Mm-hmm. That ain't Satan. I like no one. Yeah. Well, the, the, the point is these people have abandoned the truth. And, you know, what, what, what we see in our society today is spilling into the church. People don't want to deal with the truth. Truth is a relative concept. And so I don't want you to enforce your view of truth on me. And I won't enforce my view of truth on you. That's the mentality out that door. And what people forget is there's a God in heaven who's told you what is true and what isn't. But they don't want to accept that. No, I think they, they don't want to force some truth on them, but they want to force their truth on you. They want to force their non-truth on you. They're, they're, they're basically saying, look, you know, if you want to get married to a man, not me, but you, if you want to marry a man, that's fine. If you want to marry a woman, that's fine too. Whatever you want to do. And what's, what floats my boat may not float your boat. And who are you to tell me what to do? That's the mentality. I argue with the guy today on that. Yeah. And it's interesting that it passed by a two-to-one majority. It's interesting. Every, every state in which that was on the ballot, 11 states, and I'm betting money, that's one of the reasons we have Bush instead of Kerry in there. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say it's encouraging. I mean, that you get such a big margin. I think there's a statement by God there about this, <laughs> the truth there in this situation. You know, it was interesting. They were, were talking. they were talking about, I love watching Fox News, and they were talking about what was the single thing that turned the election. You know, they're trying to find, like, what was it that, that turned the election to Bush instead of Kerry? They were talking, one said swift boat vets did carry in, another one said whatever. But I think one guy got it right, I forget who said it. 
He said probably the single thing that helped John or helped President Bush the most was the Massachusetts State Supreme Court. When they decided to force gay marriage in their state, that's probably what gave the election to Bush. Because now all of a sudden all these states have it on the ballot. And in all the states where it was on the ballot, Ohio, you see, you know, the election turn on it. I don't know. I, I don't know what God's doing up there. But the whole point is we live in a society where, this, where truth is assaulted. And I expect it out there. I don't expect it in the church. But in the church it's saying people are going to leave the church and they're going to listen to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons. And they're going to speak lies and hypocrisy. What's lies and hypocrisy? Well, we know what lies are. Lies are untruth. And what's hypocrisy? Saying one thing, doing another. And this is what I find fascinating. There is a disconnect in America between what you say and what you do. A total disconnect. I was amazed when I pick up the newspaper and it says 63% of Catholics voted for Kerry. I say, oh, well, they got, they got statistics on that. And they say about 63% of Catholics. So I'm sitting there saying, how can a person who claims to love God, to go to church, to believe in life, to believe in the sanctity of life, vote for someone who doesn't believe that at all? And they say, well, John Kerry's a Catholic. Well, he may be a Catholic, but what he is and what he says, two different things. Well, what I want to know is why can't, if we can be so outspoken about the one man, one woman marriage, why can't we get some of this smut off of the TV? Yeah. I want to know what I can do. I, when I'm tooling, I'm tooling like this. So I... yeah. But what you see here in this text is there are people whose messages do not reflect their life. And what do you find out about the elder in the previous chapter? Their life is to reflect their message. And if it doesn't, they're disqualified. What's so hard about that? Jimmy Swaggart was doing a series on adultery when he was seeing, what was it, Jessica Han or whatever, Han or Fawn or whatever it is on the side. Hypocrisy. False teachers. A disconnection between what I say and what I do. And what the Bible is saying, listen, what you do had better match up with what you say or shut up. Shut up. False teachers say one thing and do another. It says here they speak lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. What does that mean, to be seared? When you sear the flesh and you burn your skin, what happens to it? Well, it hurts, but what happens? And what happens when you touch the scar? You can't feel anything. It's deadened. What Paul is saying is they're like men who's taken their conscience, they've seared it with a hot iron so that they don't feel any wrong. The moral compass is out. And we live in a society where people's consciences are seared. 
They've done it so much that they don't feel it's wrong anymore. One lady billed herself as a Christian talk psychologist on a TV show, and somebody called in and said they had a problem with a particular sin, and they were told, well, what you need to do is just keep going and doing that until it doesn't hurt anymore. That'll, that'll take care of your problem with guilt. So if you feel guilty about shooting somebody, just shoot enough of them, and after a while you won't feel guilty anymore. Right? Yeah, toughen up. That is. It is. It is. Now, now listen. Now, I want you to let's think about this a minute, because I want you to compare their conscience seared with in chapter one, verse um, where it says here in verse five. Now, the purpose of the commandment is. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience. So he's comparing some people. He's comparing the people with a pure heart, good conscience, and unfeigned faith with false teachers who have a seared conscience. A conscience that's lost the ability to feel remorse. You know, I love watching CSI. In fact, I'm taping it because I can't get home in time to see it. It's amazing to see people who commit crimes on that, no conscience. And I'm sitting there thinking, boy, you know, if I did one of those crimes, I couldn't live with myself. And people think nothing of it. Oh, she ruined it. I didn't even see last night's episode. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> the sand hog, right? The guy that was dead in the... Oh, man. That's all right. I'm giving her a hard time. Oh, she, she's working up for a good test this time. Oh, yes. I got to write this down. Wait a minute here. <laughs> but, but the whole point is, you've got people today who have no conscience. They kill, they murder, they steal, they rape. No conscience. Think nothing of it. You don't think same time? No. No. Because, see, I think you don't understand is how depraved humans are. We are so depraved. Why is it that Hitler could murder millions of people and not, not lose a night's sleep? It's burned. It's seared. You do it long enough, it doesn't matter. These men here, they, they talk truth in that, but their consciences are seared. And it comes out. You can't change what they are. What did, Christ, what did God say in the Isaiah? Can a leopard change his spots? Or an Ethiopian change his skin? Neither can you who are used to doing good, evil do good. You can't do it. No. God's got to transform you. God's got to give you a good conscience. And where do you get the good conscience? Well, you get it by saturating yourself in the Word of God and learning how to program it right. That's where the conscience comes from. And he says, now, now understand what he's saying here. He, he's not making an exhaustive list of things. He's giving some examples. Um, they might forbid to marry. And a command to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The more rigmarole you have to go through to be accepted by God, 
the less the reality of your relationship with God is. Think about that. The more rules you have, the more legalistic lists of things you have to do and not do and what to wear and not wear and all of that stuff, the less you're the reality of your relationship with Christ is. It's a relationship, folks. Christ is more interested in my relationship with Him than all the minutia that we steep ourselves in. And we get so hung up on the minutia, we forget about the relationship. There are people that make a big, fat, hairy deal about what clothes you wear, but it doesn't matter to them about other things. It's the relationship. It's the relationship. They're worried about what you eat and what you don't eat. It doesn't matter. Now, he's probably talking about the Jewish people here, right? They were the ones that were so big on what you eat and not eat. And he's saying, look, it doesn't matter if it's received with thanksgiving. We get so hung up on the externals and the, the trappings of religious stuff that we forget the relationship. Well, these guys don't have a relationship, do they? There is no relationship here. So what are they left with? Externals. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The truth about what? Truth about God. Now, this could probably, you can make the argument, and I think validly, that this is hearkening back to the meat offered to idols problem that we read about in Corinthians and Romans. And the bottom line in that, what does Paul say about eating meat sacrificed to idols? Nothing wrong with it, right? But if it offends somebody, don't do it out of deference to them. But quite honestly, folks, food is food. Those idols are dead. And by the way, it's God who gave you the food. You know, have at it. There's nothing wrong with it. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to refuse to receive with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified or set apart by the word of God in prayer. Every good thing is received with thanksgiving. Paul here is talking about, in the last days, you're going to have false prophets come along. They're going to have several characteristics. They're going to deny the truth. Their conscience are going to be seared with a hot iron. They're going to be deceivers, and they're deceived themselves, and they're being deceitful. They come up with rules and regulations about not marrying or, or what you eat and what you don't eat. These are people that have departed from the truth. So if you depart from the truth, where do you go? Error. You depart into error. And Paul is telling Timothy, one of the jobs, one of your jobs as an elder in that church, is you're to guard the truth. We're to all guard the truth, folks. It's part of all of our jobs, all of our responsibility to guard the truth. That's the most important thing, because if you lose that, you've lost it all. And Paul is saying in verse 6, if you instruct the brother in these things, you will be what? A good minister. If you instruct the believers in what? In the truth. 
If you teach them the truth, you're a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed, the good, healthy, wholesome doctrine. So when you go to what's the most important part of the church service? The Word of God. The Word of God, not the singing, not the solos, not the benediction so you can get home and eat dinner. It's the Word of God. It's the opening of the Word. It is the preaching and proclamation of the truth. It is the teaching that's the most important. It might be good to have hymns. It's good to have other things there. But listen, the Word of God is the most critical part of the service. It is where the Word of God is proclaimed, where the truth is spoken. And so many times you go to churches, people say, well, you know, I don't like church because the preacher spoke too long this morning. He spoke too long. Five minutes is good enough. These same people don't know the truth. Paul's saying, you want to be a good minister, Timothy, of Jesus Christ? You, you, want to, you want to be acceptable to God? Speak the truth. Nourish the people in the word of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Where did Timothy get the good doctrine? From the word of God, from Paul, from godly men. Pass it on. Listen to the good doctrine, but reject what? Profane and old wives' fables. And again, that goes back to chapter 1. What doctrine are you listening to? Are you listening to stuff you sit around and argue about how long a woman's skirt hem ought to be? Spending five hours figuring out just how far above the knee it's allowed to go? That's old wives' fables. That's junk. That's, that's a waste of time. Reject that. Don't worry about that minutia. Don't worry about the things that don't matter. Don't get hung up on all of these little things. Be, th these are things spoken by people who want to be teachers of the law, and they don't know what they're talking about. They want to be the expert. Paul is saying reject it. Don't even pay attention to it. Don't entertain it. Don't talk about it. Reject it. And exercise yourself towards godliness. What does it mean to exercise yourself towards godliness? To work at it, right? You got people a day that come to your church that spend a half hour every day exercising and they haven't read their Bible in a year. Paul says, exercise yourselves to godliness. Where do you get that from God? Reject the old wives' fables. Reject the foolish speculations and endless genealogies. Reject the mumbo-jumbo. And instead, focus on what is important, the good, healthy doctrine. <laughs> and what does good, healthy doctrine produce? Three things. What does it produce? Unfeigned faith.
unfeigned faith, a good conscience, and love from a pure heart. And if you've got somebody teaching stuff and it's not producing that, they're not teaching the right stuff. They're teaching the wrong stuff. And, you know, I, I look, I hear stories of churches where the preacher spends all day long talking about the sin of singles dating. Get over it. You're producing censorious, critical, sure, surly Christians that are more concerned with the minutiae than they are with a vibrant, healthy, living relationship with the living God. Bodily exercise profits a little. It does, doesn't it? Paul's not saying let your body go to pot. He's saying, but when you compare the things in life, what's more important, bodily exercise or spiritual exercise? Yeah, because what's going to happen to your body? Someday it's going to go away, right? Someday that's all she wrote. But what happens to your spirit? Yeah. Your spirit doesn't diminish. In fact, the older you get in the Lord, the more stronger you should be. Godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is now and of that which is to come. Does your body last into the life to which is to come? No, you get a new one, right? So, you know, the Bible is not saying let your body go to pot. There are other verses that balance this out where your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're to take care of it. But to be obsessed with it, to the point of obsession, it's that's what it's saying. Godliness is profitable for here, and it's profitable for then. Exercise yourself to godliness. And I think the, the concept here is think about it. The same discipline that you see professional athletes expend to be at the top of their game is the same kind of discipline we ought to spend to be godly. That's not five minutes a day in the daily bread. If you're trained to be an Olympic athlete, you don't do your sport 15 minutes a day. You do it a lot longer than that. And Paul is saying exercise yourself to godliness. The word exercise here, I don't have my Greek in front of me, but I think it means to work to exhaustion. Work at it. And later on he's going to say, study to show yourself approved to God. The word study there, spude, means to work hard. To the point of exhaustion. And he's talking later on in this book about elders who work hard. It's not tiptoe through the tulips. It's hard work. It's effort. Exercise yourself to godliness. For this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. This is the third time. I think it's the third time we got it here. This is a worthy, acceptable statement. Exercise yourself to godliness, which is good for now and for the hereafter. For to this end, we both labor and suffer, suffer reproach. Who's the we there? Well, Paul and it's an editorial we. Timothy, why do we go through what we're doing? 
Why do we go through this energy and this expenditure of, of, of time and effort? Why? Because we trust in the living God. Why do we suffer labor? Why do we labor and suffer reproach? You know, if, if God isn't real, we're nuts. We're crazy. We're spending all kinds of energy and effort on something that is irrelevant. Go have a beer with your friends and enjoy life. Don't come to class if this is all there is down here. What makes Paul able to suffer reproach and to labor? Because he serves the living God. And there's coming a day in which it will be worth it. Now it's a lot of energy and a lot of hard work and a lot of effort. But someday it's worth it. What makes an athlete work so hard at their sport? Because someday when they compete and win, it's worth it. We trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. What's he saying there? Our trust in God who is what? Savior of who? All right, what does he mean he's the Savior of all men? Does that mean he saves every man? He's the Savior of all, especially of the elect, the believers. There's no, there's no indication in the Bible that God, that Christ sacrificed as the Savior of the world is only good enough to save the people who are elect. It's, a, it's an infinite sacrifice. It was acceptable for all men of all time, of all ages. And had God elected all men, all men would be saved, but he didn't. So Christ is the Savior of all men, but he is the real Savior of those who believe. Because how do you get to heaven? Human perspective. You believe. You believe. Don't get hung up on the elect business. Just tell people, repent and believe. And if they're elect, they'll repent and believe. If they're not, they won't. Paul's saying he's the Savior of all men. What motivated Paul to be what he was? Well, Jesus on the road, but what's he saying here? What's the motivation for him here? Why? What's it saying here? No. Paul put all his hope in the living God, knowing that God will make all his hard work with his payoff. That's true, but what's he saying here? Why is he proclaiming Christ? Because he's a savior. Because he's a savior. If you're going to get saved, it's him. It's not any other way. Now you don't see a hyper Calvinist in this verse, right? Because what would a hyper Calvinist say? Ah, if they're in, they're in. If they're not, they're not. And I'm not going to worry about it. Pass another pina colada, Timothy. Let's have a 
pass the chips and salsa. Put your feet up. No, there's no, there's nothing here about fatalism. Paul is saying, I'm preaching, I'm suffering, I'm laboring because Christ is the Savior of all men. If you're going to get saved, it's going to be through Christ. And later on, and by the way, in first in 2 Timothy 2:10, he talks about he suffers and labors so that those who are elect may believe and be saved. Paul understood he was part of the program. He was part of the process. Oh yeah, these guys are elect, but listen, Christ is the Savior of all men. So how does that Savior get connected to the all men who are to believe? Well, somebody's got to tell them. And I'm the one that's to tell them. I'm the one that's to share the truth with them so that they can believe. And if I keep my mouth shut, somebody else will do it, but I'm not going to worry about that. All I know is God's called me. Because Christ is the Savior of all men. It's sort of like what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, all the way back there at the beginning. Why does he desire that we pray for all men, especially for the kings? Because there is one mediator between God and man. No, no mediator, you don't win. You don't get there, right? Christ is the Savior of all men. Especially of those who believe these things... Command and teach. What's he telling Timothy to do? Command and teach it. And don't be a wuss about it. Just tell them. The command there, is that an optional kind of thing? No. You command people. And you teach them. There's no room in this, in, in this kind of proclamation here for personal opinion. We're to be forceful about it. And we're not to back down. And what Paul tells him later on in the next verse, don't let anybody despise your youth. Well, how old was Timothy when he wrote this? Well, define young. Maybe in the 30s. Makes me feel good, you know, because I'm a little older than that. I'm getting older as it goes on. You know, 5-0 isn't that far away from me, folks. And that's a scary thing. You know, yeah, but I take a look in the mirror and it's, you know, the, the, the years are starting to show, show their wear and tear on me. Yeah, you're, you're saying 50, that's pretty good. I, I like to be 50 again, you know. But the whole point here is that Paul's saying, don't let anybody despise you. Don't be intimidated by the people that think you're just a young whippersnapper. Because you're preaching the truth of the Word of God. Don't let them worry about your youth. Don't be intimidated by it, but be an example to the believers. How, how do you... This, this, is, this is the thing, folks. The gospel message is validated by the way you live. And we live in a society today where what you say and believe and what you are is disconnected. And it's not to be, because that's what lives, gives validity to what you say. It gives validity to what you say. When you say you're, you're for life, but then you vote to keep legal partial birth abortions, you're, you're saying something different 
your, your, your life is not matching what you're saying. When you have somebody preach to you about holiness and they're seeing a hooker on the side, there's something invalid about their message. When they tell you to trust God in your finances but they're driving a Rolls Royce, there's something wrong. Paul is telling Timothy, your life had better match what you speak because if it doesn't, it's invalidating the message. Don't Remember, it goes back to the, the previous chapter. If you can't run your own house, what makes you think you're going to run the church of God? If your kids are in chaos, what makes you think you're going to be able to preach to, to the people in the, word of, in, the, in the church of God? If your life is not matching what you're preaching, what makes you think you can stand up and proclaim the truth? You can't. The character is everything. Character is everything. It's everything. And he's saying, I want you to be an example of the believers in your word. What does it mean to be in your word? Well, how you speak, in your conduct, how you live, in love, how you treat other people, in your spirit, your gracious spirit, in your faith and in your purity. You're to be an example to believers in your life and the way you live. You're to be an example and a model to them. They're to be able to look at you and when, they, when somebody says, well, tell me what the godly person looks like, and you say, well, check out Timothy. He's, he's a model of what one ought to be. So we live in a society that says, don't do as I do, do as I say. As believers, we should be able to tell people, if, you wanna, if you're having trouble figuring out how to live for Jesus, look at me. Not, and that's not an ego trip, right? Paul says, be ye followers together with me as I am of Christ. Don't follow me if I'm not following Christ. And he's telling Timothy, you need to be an example to the believers. You're to show them what godliness is. They're to be able to look at you, the, the elder, the leader in the church, and be able to discern what godliness is. doesn't mean you're faultless. doesn't mean you don't make a mistake. But there's a match between what you say and what you are. You're not hypocritical. And that's what it means by an unfeigned, unhypocritical faith. The doctrine that produces that is the doctrine you want to teach. And if you're going to a church where they say it's okay to be one thing and say another, that's the wrong church to be in. And let me tell you something. It's hard to do that in public. It's even harder to do it in private, isn't it? No one's watching you at home. You can be one thing in public and be something else totally in private. You want to be qualified? What's integrity? Integrity is just being what you are all the time. Character is everything. And until I come... So you see, he got this motif, I'm coming, I'm not going to be there yet, but till I come, till I show up, what's Timothy to do? Give attention to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Okay, what is that? Study. Reading. Yeah. Now, for those of you who took hermeneutics, right, this is one of our key verses, wasn't it? Read the text, exhort, explain the text, Doctrine, apply the text. Read the Word of God. 
Now, why do you need to read it in those days? Well, people didn't have their Bibles, right? Nobody, the average person back then didn't have their own Bible. They didn't have their own scroll. So if you didn't, somebody didn't read to them, they didn't get it. And most people couldn't read anyways. So until I come, until I show up, Timothy, I want you to read the Word of God. And then I want you to exhort. What does it mean to exhort? Explain, encourage, admonish, teach them. Okay, this is what it says, this is what it means. And again, we went back to hermeneutics. Every text has one meaning, doesn't it? Don't stand and say, well, you know, I think this verse says blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't care what you think, right? What does it mean? And there are rules, and for those who took hermeneutics and how to study the Bible, we learned rules. They're, they're given rules. It's not hard. It, it's not hard in the sense that it's a very complicated technique. It's hard in the sense that it takes time to do it, maybe. But you can do it. And until I come, I want you to read I want you to explain it. And then doctrine. Give attendance to doctrine. Teaching people what God says, the teachings. Doctrine is important. We live in a church full of practitioners where when the, when the pastor comes up and says, we're going to talk about the doctrine of eschatology. Everybody runs for cover. Oh my gosh, I can't understand it. It's over my head. You've got the same Holy Spirit everybody else has. You can understand doctrine. You may not be a theologian, right? You can understand doctrine. You can understand it. Give attendance to doctrine. Why? Because doctrine is the pillar and support of the truth. And the church is to be the deposit of truth. It's to be protected, it's to be guarded, it's to be proclaimed, it's to be taught. Churches may do a lot of things, but their number one responsibility is to guard and proclaim the truth. Number one. Everything else falls out of that. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. What gift would that be? Preaching, teaching what his giftedness was. Don't neglect it. Can you neglect the gift that was given to you by God? How many of you know what your spiritual gift is? Do you do it? I like, I like to teach the adult women. I don't meet the criteria. It's easy, to, it's easy to find out what your spiritual gift is. Just ask, what do you want to do, right? What do you want to do in the church? That's your gift. God does not give you a spiritual gift that you just absolutely hate exercising. And it's not talking, Brenda. Okay, I'm joking with her. No, it's a spiritual gift is, is what do you like to do? What do you enjoy doing? And Paul is telling Timothy, don't neglect the gift that was given to you by the laying on of hands. Evidently, the, now what was the laying on of hands? What was that about? It wasn't a ceremony, but the elders or somebody would lay hands on them 
It wasn't a blessing. It was. It was a commissioning. Was there anything yeah. magical about it? No. no. But when you laid hands on somebody, you were commissioning them. You were approving them. You were encouraging them. You were sending them off with your blessing. And in those days, you laid hands on elders and on prophets and kings to commission them. And today we do the same thing. There's nothing magical about it. But in the biblical times, it was a sign of a commission, a sign that you are representing us. And it wasn't done hastily. We're going to find out next chapter. Don't do it fast. Meditate on these things, give, your entirety, give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Meditate on what? The Word of God, the truth. Give yourself to it so that your, your progress may be evident to all. What do you mean by that? Is your pastor becoming pickled or is he becoming more godly? It's becoming more pickled, more surely, more cranky, more obstinate. He's not reading and doing the right things. What's he, Paul's telling Timothy, your spiritual growth should be evident to all by giving yourself to these things. They should be able to see your growth. Then it may be evident to all. In other words, you're not hiding it. And that goes along with the idea of transparency, right? The pastor is to be transparent in the sense that people are to see his character and see what he is like. And how does he show them what God is truly like? By meditating on the Word of God, by studying the Word of God, by giving himself wholly to the truth of the Word of God. This is how he proclaims the truth. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Watch yourself. Take heed, there's a strong term. It means be on the lookout, be on guard. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep on it. Take heed to yourself. What does it mean to take heed to yourself? What's he telling Timothy to do? To what? Be aware of your faults. Keep an eye on them. Don't think that you've arrived at a state where it ain't going to bother you. Because when you're not looking, where's Satan doing? He's coming after you. Folks, there are pastors that have fallen into sin because they fell asleep on this. Take heed to yourself. We all have weaknesses, don't we? Yes. So what do you do in those weak areas? What needs you to what do you need to do? Watch it. If you have weakness in an area, put up barriers. Take precautions. Keep an eye out. That's the bright thing to do. Timothy, watch out for yourself. Take heed to yourself and to what? The doctrine. Don't fall asleep on it. It's a serious, serious thing. Watch yourself 
and watch yourself and the way you use the doctrine, you hold the doctrine, you uphold the doctrine. Watch that. Because if you lose that, you've lost everything. Continue in them. Continue in what? The doctrine. Watching yourself. Keeping an eye on yourself. Disciplining yourself. Exercising yourself to godliness. What does Paul tell him? Exercise yourself unto godliness. Keep an eye on it. Be diligent. Keep at it. Continue in them. For in doing so, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. What does it mean to save yourself? You're saved by doing these things? No, but what do you make evident? Your salvation. And you save yourself from disqualification. It's not talking about eternal salvation. It's you're saving yourself from disaster. And not only do you save yourself, but who else do you save? If you're in a position of spiritual leadership, folks, you're not responsible for just yourself. Don't get this idea, well, it's just me and I can do as I please. No, you can't. What you do affects other people. What you do affects other people. If you have kids, they mimic you. If you're sitting there smoking cigarettes and drinking beer on high on crack and you tell your kids that smoking, drinking, and drugs are bad, they're going to wind up with Seth one of these days, right? Because it doesn't, it doesn't match. If you're going to save yourself, if you're going to be an example yourself and you're going to help others, you need to continue in this because when you fall, Timothy, you're not going to just damage yourself. You're going to damage everybody looking at you. Take heed to yourself. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. This whole chapter here really is a, is, a, is a series of warnings to Timothy telling him, Timothy, stay awake. Pay attention. Listen up. Because you've got something that is extremely valuable. And if you blow it, you affect yourself and you affect everybody else. And the reason you need to uphold this doctrine is number one, for yourself. And number two, because Jesus Christ is a Savior of all men. Part of our job is to take the gospel message to all men. What motivated Paul? He was under compulsion. Why? Because the gospel was the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Romans 1.16, it's the power of God. Paul saw himself under divine pro compulsion to proclaim and teach and preach. Woe is me if I preach not the word. And Paul saw himself as a model. He said, if I blow this, I'm going to destroy myself and those around me. I can't let my guard down. And see, we do that sometimes. We let our guard down. We're just not paying attention. How do you keep your guard up? You stay in the Word. Because you stay in the Word, you have a good conscience, and that conscience gives him alarms when getting close, right? Stay awake. Don't fall asleep, Timothy. 
because you're responsible for how you live. Well, let's take our break there and we'll pick up um, chapter 5 when we get back. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.